Now, let's get started. Please take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. Take out your Bible, for we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 today. If you look at your handout sheet, you will notice that we are in part 10 of our Hebrews series, entitled Our Faithful High Priest, and I entitled this morning's message, True Healing. And I want to begin with uh, the quote there on the sheet in front of you, which comes from a book by C.S. Lewis. Now, quick show of hands, how many of you have either read the book or seen the movie The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Anybody seen that? Okay, a good amount of you. For those of you that have not, let me bring you up to speed. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books that are referred to as the Narnia Chronicles. They begin with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, then it was Prince Caspian, then it was The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The Dawn Treader was a ship. Is kind of the idea, and it's a magical land where uh, different things happen, and there is a Christ figure in there, and there's a lot of levels of teaching about reality and about the Lord within those books. Well, uh, one story in particular, my favorite out of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, was only referred to briefly in the movie. So if you saw the movie, it touched on it, but it did not really expand it. And it was the idea that there was this little boy in the story that is absolutely horrid. Uh, his name is Eustace, and the whole time you're reading about him, I mean, in the movie they portrayed him pretty, pretty irritating, but when you're reading the book, you begin to hate this kid. And as he is greedy and, and mean and nasty and selfish, uh, they go into this magical land, he gets caught up in the adventure, and he ends up on this island where he finds some gold. And in his heart, he is greedy, and so he doesn't want to leave it, he falls asleep on it. When he wakes up, he is a dragon. Uh, physically a dragon and he of course panics and what's going on and tries to figure it out and he's sad and depressed and anyway at some point he tries to get rid of it so he scratches and like you would see a snake shedding its skin he realizes as a reptile he can shed off skin so he scratches and this whole uh, skin comes off the dragon but he looks and he's still a dragon and so he does it all over again and scratches and gets a whole nother sheet of skin off, but he's still a dragon. He does it a fourth time, uh, a third time, and then a fourth time. By the fourth time, he is hopeless, knowing that no matter how much he scratches, he is still a monster within. Well, at that time, the Christ figure, who is a lion named Aslan, comes up to him and he lets him know no matter what he does he cannot change his condition but that aslan can and so he said well what does that mean and he expresses to him that he's going to need to pierce his heart and he's going to need to do the deeper work and the little boy says or the dragon says is that going to hurt and he says absolutely and uh, he finally gets to a point of surrender and he allows the lion to stick his claw puncture deep within and rips off that whole piece of him throws him in the water when he comes back out he is back to being a boy obviously we can see the spiritual dynamics that are in that metaphor right which is the idea that if we are wicked to the core as people no matter how many times you try to turn over a new leaf no matter how many times you try to start over no matter how many times you try to be a better person you are still a monster within it is not until jesus christ goes to the deepest place of which you must surrender to him and allow him to go that far for him to go to the deepest place of your heart pierce your heart and rip off the old way 
Only then will you become what God intended you to be. Yeah, we all see that. Now, as I was looking through that uh, passage and reflecting on that story, I began to think about all the wounds that we have. All the wounds that we carry around, whether it's a wound of unforgiveness or it's a wound of abuse or it's a wound of hurt feelings or whatever it is. We all have these wounds all over us where uh, some of them are very deep, some are superficial, whatever. And Jesus Christ comes to us and wants to address our wounds. But when he when he gets there, we are not very happy about it. Uh, my mom uh, goes to church here. She's with us here this morning. And I, and I reflect on the idea that when I was little, I would fall down and hurt myself. Uh, and I would scrape my arm or I'd hurt my myself. And she would say, we need to run it under the water or we need to put some peroxide on it to clean it out. And my first reaction was, don't touch it. Right? I mean, we can all relate to that. Don't touch it. What we are saying is... The pain is only now starting to die down. You cannot inflame it. That's just going to make it worse. Just leave it alone. Of course, the parent knows that if you leave it alone, it's open to infection, and that will make it hurt worse later. But as a child, you don't care. Whatever this infection is, obviously it can't be worse than the pain you're feeling now, so just leave it. When Jesus Christ comes to us in our woundedness, he says, can I address that? And you say, don't touch it, stay away from it. I don't want you to touch it because we're so afraid that if you address that area, it's going to inflame and I'm going to die. I can't handle any more pain. It's already been pain for so long. I don't want it worse. That's why I'm trying to ignore it. Whereas Jesus Christ says, a good parent would say, but if you do not address it, it can get infected and I need to clean it. Uh, what we need to understand is that we are so willing to just put bandages over problems, but the problem still exists. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this healing is better than bandages. Healing is better than bandages, but in the process of healing, sometimes some things need to be addressed that hurt a whole lot. It's like resetting a bone. That is going to hurt initially so that it might form properly later. But up front, there's a lot of pain and we don't like pain. We are pain avoiders. But I need you to understand that for Jesus to handle the deepest healing issues, we have to give him full access and full right into our lives. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter nine. If you need a Bible, it's under the chair in front of you. It's page one thousand five. But let me bring you up to speed. Last week, we had a guest speaker. His name was Cy Rogers. And he did an absolutely fantastic, solid theological job. I was so proud of him. Not only is he a friend of mine, and I enjoyed being with him and spending some time with him, but he delivered a very powerful message about the nature of God. And I hope that you enjoyed it as well. Um, I thought it was extraordinary. Uh, but what that does is it means that it's been a week removed from the last time we engaged with Hebrews. So let me bring you back up to speed. We had talked about just prior to that, that Moses was called by God to erect a tent where God would meet with him. And we talked about how stunning that was. And I explained the process that when Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, God uh, showed him a blueprint 
gave him descriptions on how to create a tent by which God would be partially housed and he would meet with Moses face to face. Well, as my studies have revealed, and I have to go back and look a little bit more, I only spent this week on it, but it appears that after getting those blueprints, that tabernacle was not built for a year. In between that time, Moses knew that the concept that God would meet with him, so he put up a simple tent that he called the tent of meeting. And the Bible says that when the cloud would descend on the tent of meeting, Moses would go away from the people. He would, he would post it way outside the camp, away from everybody. They would all watch him walk out, and he would go alone to meet with God. And God was somewhat removed. Well, over that time, finally they got the money together, and they built this extraordinary tabernacle where God would come and meet with Moses and the priesthood and things like that. Um, And then eventually, when Israel settled down and became permanent, that became a permanent building that we then knew as the temple. So it went tent of meeting, tabernacle, temple. Make sense? They're all the same concept, but they just became more permanent along the way. I want you to think of two main things as I'm teaching this morning that, in my mind, are very powerful aspects of God dwelling in a tabernacle. The first one is this, that God would even meet with man at all should blow our minds. He is an altogether separate form entity. He is glorious, magnificent, perfect in every way, pure, holy, good in all things. The fact that he would reach down and spend any time with a wretched, wicked, messed up, rebellious, spitting in his face people is extraordinary. But yet he said, I want to be near you and I'm willing to come down to you and I'm willing to engage in your world and live in a place by you. So first of all, I want you, as we talk about everything this morning, to realize how awesome it is that God would dwell with man, that God would come and be near us because he loves us so much. The second aspect that I found rather stunning as I was doing my studies, somebody said one line and my mind just took off with it. And it was this, why did God dwell in a tent? Because prior to that, when he first met Moses, the first time he met Moses, he showed up in what? Anybody remember? A burning bush. So why didn't he just keep that MO? Why didn't he just go and just blow up in bushes all over the place? And he's like, dude, I'll meet you at that bush over there, you know. And then the bush would light on fire and he'd talk to him and then they'd go to another place and he'd meet in another bush. You know, why didn't they keep that going? Why did God allow them to build a tent? And the simple answer is because they lived in tents. They lived in tents, so God said, all right, is that what you guys live in? Right on, I'll live in a tent. Why don't you guys make me one? I'll come and join you in what you're doing. Why? Identification. Identification, that's what they understood, that's what they knew, that's what they could relate to. So God ends up going, I just want to do stuff where you and I are together. So you're living in a tent? Right on, build me one. I'll live in one too. Of course, we can see how much more powerful that becomes with the incarnation. Yeah? Because now you have the second person of the Trinity saying, you live in skin? Well, that's cool because I'll do that too. And he becomes flesh and dwells among us. And here you have Jesus walking alongside us in the very same tents that we live in. Yeah? How powerful is that?
It's that identification. It's the ability to walk along and say, I know what you're going through. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're into. I get it. I've walked there. I've seen the limitations. You want me to identify with you? You want me to know that I'm personal? I'll do that. Sure. What are we going to do? You got skin? I'll get skin. Let's just make sure that we're together. Those things just blew my mind as I began this study. So let's dive into Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1. We're just going to do 10 verses. We'll leave the rest for next week. But we're going to do 10 verses because there's an incredible amount of history and understanding that we need to know to be able to have this open up for our study. I'll just read through it. It says this. If I find the right page. Here we go. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, which are regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would dwell with us that you would degrade yourself to walk among us that you would subject yourself to limitation to show your love your ability to demonstrate your love and grace and mercy is extraordinary and we just want to tell you thank you we do not want to live ungrateful lives we do not want the awe of our lives to drift away we ask that you would fill us with your power by revealing to us who you are so lord we submit under your hand today would you heal our hurts would you heal our misunderstanding and would you increase our love and our faith in jesus name we pray amen all right we are going to go through some of the pieces of this, and as you can tell as we walk through the tabernacle, we are going to have some of the uh, furniture here in front of us. So, uh, just to let you know, I decided, oh, look, I'm going into the tabernacle concept, and I knew that uh, a couple in the church had built, for a play prior, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, over here we had all seen that before and i'd use it as an illustration and i said well wouldn't it be awesome if we had the other pieces and we could construct a tabernacle right here among us as a visual and so i said that is awesome as long as i don't do it and so what i did is i gave the couple less than two weeks notice and they built all the rest of it 
from scratch. That was uh, Fred and Claire Radford, and they had some friends that stepped in there, and Fred uh, designed the whole thing and put it together. So I'm going to invite you after the service to come on up here and take a look at some of the pieces, because as you're reading forward in your scripture, you're going to be fascinated to be able to know, oh, that's how big it was. Oh, that's what it was like. Oh, that's what it looked like in person. So these things are all here for our learning. All right, so we're going to kind of go through that and talk about it a little bit today. So let's go back into the passage that we have. It says, now even the first covenant, meaning the old way of doing things before Jesus. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, specific rules for righteousness. And it had an earthly place of holiness, one made by men, monitored, managed by men. Verse 2, for a tent was prepared, not just designed on the outside, but furnished and equipped on the inside. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which were three items, the golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded the tablets, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Well, sure we can. So we're going to do that right now. Uh, If you could throw up the slide, we have a visual presentation of what it would look like from the outside. Let's say there's an aerial view when Moses was in his helicopter and he was able to surround it and take photographs, right? Now, as you will notice, there's a massive courtyard. It is 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. It has seven and a half foot walls around it of curtain. They are fine linen. They're white. Why white? Because it likely stands for the holiness of God. It creates a perimeter. Uh, That was a massive, massive courtyard. And Israel was allowed in there. There were two special objects that I will tell you about in one moment. But notice that there is a gate or a curtain gate in front. That curtain gate is 30 feet wide. It was As this curtain is similar right here, it was purple and red or scarlet and blue. It was embroidered with cherubim on it. We don't know what the cherubim design exactly was, so this is an artist's rendering or guess. But it was 30 feet wide. Lots of people could pour in and get out. So easy in, in, easy out, because Israel was to be gathered in for certain events. This is a massive courtyard. To give you an idea, in this building that we're sitting in now, from that back corner all the way to this corner, is 164 feet. It is just shy of that long. Um, If you went from the back wall to the front wall, all the way behind the stage, that's still not long enough. So it's a pretty big courtyard. Wide, it's 75 feet, so it's not quite as wide as this building right here, but almost. The Inside, that red-tented area is actually what is referred to as the tabernacle itself. That is actually a 45-foot-long, 15-feet-wide building. Give you an idea on how big that is. If we start right here on the edge of the stage, 
The Holy of Holies is 15 feet square, so inside it goes right to here. So from here to the edge of that stage, a 15-foot square area is the Holy of Holies. You can't even see it. It's inside that building. You would then go another 30 feet this way, all the way to this marking over here. This is 45 feet from here to the edge of the stage. That's how big the tabernacle was. Our stage is 22 feet deep. It is only 15 feet wide. Make sense? So it's narrow and long, and you can see that's the whole building. In the 15 by 15, there was only one item, the Ark of the Covenant. That's why we have it way down there. In this huge hallway were a number of items, which I will describe to you here in a moment. Before we walk into the building, let me express what is in the courtyard. In the courtyard, you can see that there is a large square altar of sacrifice, it was known as the bronze altar. It's massive. How do we know that? Because it's right here. Okay? So this is it. I don't know if whenever we would refer to, oh, and they sacrificed a lamb or they sacrificed a goat or whatever, and you go, wow. Oh. So it was like a little Weber. It was actually not like a little Weber. It was actually like a massive Weber. It is this big. It is seven and a half foot square. It's four and a half feet high. And it had horns on the altar where they would tie animals, where they would mark the blood that we'll talk about later. It had a huge grate across it, and underneath were coals. Remember this. Uh, these things were all had to be portable. So whoever had to carry this thing must have been like the buff crowd, right? You know what I mean? Remember I told you the Levites had certain families and their job was only to carry the materials because you're nomadic. You're moving around. This whole thing has got to go with you. So you're hauling this thing from one location to another. It's the largest item. The other item, and this was for the sacrifice of free will offerings, sin offerings, things like that. When they would come into the courtyard, Israel would lay their hands on the animal in confession and a transference of guilt, admitting to God what they had done, and the animal was slaughtered, and the priest would sacrifice it here. The other item in there was a wash basin. We have water in here. Um, and up in that picture, you'll notice it almost looks like a swimming pool. This one looks like a, like a bird bath, right? And you go, well, which one is it? There is no descriptions of dimensions in Scripture of it at all. We have no idea how big it was. We have no idea if it was tiny. We have no idea about any of that. So different artists will have it in different ways. This was for all ritual cleansing. When I talk to you a little later about all the cleansings that the high priest would have to do, it was done right here. All the priests would clean up here ritually before they did anything else. All right. So these two pieces are out in this massive courtyard but now we're inside the building, and this is what he's going to describe through us. So, this building that you're looking at, the tabernacle proper, had 48 acacia beams that held it up, as well as an I-beam and different things that would support it. 48 acacia beams, 15 feet high. It's an extraordinarily tall building. 15 feet high, 2 feet 3 inches wide beams. Those all had to be carried as well. Those were all made of acacia wood and overlaid with pure gold. All the sockets were made of silver. And only the priests ever got to go into this building. Inside that building was the lampstand. Now, I don't even know if the lampstand is... Ah, 
It is lit. You just can't tell because the lights are on. Um, the lampstand was made of pure gold, one piece, and it's 75 pounds of gold. It's an incredibly expensive item. It is not candlesticks. It is sitting in oil. The oil was perfumed so that it would be beautiful. And I just talked and blew one out. All right. <laughs> they used to do that in the Old Testament, too. They didn't really. Um, uh, the incense uh, that was added to the oil allowed that aroma also to fill the place. Remember, you are in a tented area this was your only source of light this would then sparkle out and reflect off all the gold items and it would cause a glimmering effect but it's very multi-sensory it was made of pure olive oil and was very very special it was trimmed every day they always had it running it was lit all night long every night they always had it going and so that was one of the priest's jobs the other item that was inside this area was this. It is called the table of showbread, the, the bread of the presence. And what it was was a three and a half foot high table where it had unleavened bread made of the finest flour. What we now look at, it would almost look like a pita type bread, a flattened bread. And in there it was arranged in two rows of six. Why 12 pieces of bread? Because there are 12 tribes of Israel. And bread stands for the provision, right? In between the bread was laid frankincense, so it too created a beautiful smell before the Lord. This bread was replaced every Sabbath, so it would be left all week long, replaced on the Sabbath. The old bread was only to be eaten by the priests in the sanctuary. That was an honor for them to have, all right? Um, let me think. What All these items are made of acacia wood and then overlaid with gold. These were not solid gold pieces. They were overlaid with gold. Now, the one thing that you should automatically track on so far is that Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and behold, um, I am also the bread of life. Are we all tracking on that? Just understand all the imagery that is spinning around in this environment. Israel was to be the light of the nations. We are to be the light of the world because Jesus is within us and we shine out. That's the idea. And the idea of being the bread of life for Jesus was to be the thing that sustains you and keeps you alive. It is to abide in him and live in him. All this imagery is going on. Now, this is where we get to the odd part of it. In our passage we just read, it said that this item right here, of which I'm going to get started. This is the altar of incense. It too is three and a half feet high. It has horns on the altar, of which were marked with blood later on. And it was the way of burning incense, which I'm going to burn here in a second. We have a coal in here. Let's see. Get on there. Ow! Yeah, watch out, it's hot. All right. I'm going to put it like this so we can see the smoke rise. Now, the idea here of the incense is that as the smoke rises, and they would put a lot in there. So it's pretty much going to gag and knock out everybody if we did it their style, right? They were in a tented area. It was an enclosed, not a lot of ventilation. So this place was thick with smoke. It was very significant for a couple reasons. The first reason is that as the smoke rose up before them, it was the idea of prayers being rising to God. 
right? That was the idea. But another thing that you may not be aware of is this smoke would get so thick is the idea was when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he was not to approach the presence of God. It was believed that the smoke shielded him from the presence of God that he was protected as he walked in. This item in our passage, they said it was inside the inner room. That is not correct. You go, well, Hebrews is wrong. No, he's referring to one day a year when things switch up, which I'll tell you about in a moment. But we know that this was on the outside of the curtain because it had to be handled daily. This was lit every day. But if you can't go into the inner room, how are you going to light it? Remember that you only go in the inner room once a year. Nobody goes past the curtain. So we did this and we couldn't block you from the worship team. So that's why we slid it over here. If you could take this curtain and slide it right here, this is right in front of the curtain. It's the last thing you pass almost as a mediator before the presence of God is the intercession of prayers. Right. Wow. That, that's pretty strong stuff. Um, right here. I'm inhaling that right now. Yeah. My message is going to get a lot better. Um, <laughs> uh, if you could slide the curtain here, it had the cherubim on it, and then you would go into the Holy of Holies. So why did he say it was on the inside? Because once a year, this was scooped out and a portion of it in a censer was taken into the inner room and left there for a time. When you would go into the Holy of Holies, you would bring back the curtain so light could flood in there. And it was before the Holy of Holies spreading the smoke and the incense inside. Does that make sense? All right, cool. Let's see what else we have. It says on the inside is the Ark of the Covenant, which most of us are familiar with. The pieces that you may not be familiar with is that it too, as an acacia box, it housed things. It had three items in it. One of them was the Ten Commandments, the stone commandments that were carved out. That is in here. Also, Aaron's staff that said that he was the true priesthood. When they all were arguing about who could be a priest before God, God said, everyone bring your staff. And Aaron's budded, actually flowered and produced almonds. That proof that he was the priest was in here. And also a golden jar that had some manna in it. Remember the miraculous angelic or heavenly bread that would show up and they would make stuff with it throughout the desert. That was also in here as a constant reminder that God will provide even when it doesn't even make sense. On top were two cherubim with their wings outstretched toward each other. In the middle was known as the mercy seat or the throne of God. When Moses came in to talk to God, God's voice emanated literally from right here, hovering above this lid. This was known as his throne. Now, why are there cherubim here? Why are there cherubim on the curtain? Because, do you remember when we studied the book of Revelation? Who are the closest attendants to God but the cherubim? And they hover. If you remember them, they were demonstrated to us as angelic beings that had multi wings multi faces they were kind of trippy looking you guys remember those they are incredibly powerful angels the same root word for cherubim is for curtain they would shield and house they would protect the world from the power of god so it didn't kill everybody and they protect god from the defilement of the world they were a curtain 
that would hover around. So that's why it says God is enthroned between the cherubim, because as it is in heaven, so it was here on earth, the cherubim would protect his throne. Does that make sense? All right, fantastic. Now, what we find out in all of this is that each item represents something about Jesus. Yeah? And isn't it amazing, I now have my notes in complete disorganization. Oh, well, we'll get to them later. The curtain that was between them, although it was a heavy and thick curtain, I want to tell you that symbolically it was a million miles wide. Because that curtain said nobody but one guy, once a year, ever goes into the presence of God. That curtain kept out everyone. If you went in there and you were not supposed to be in there, you were killed instantaneously. There is no messing around. Even the priests, nobody knew if he was ever going to make it out. And so they would wait with bated breath if he would ever emerge because he may well just get killed because he didn't do this, the ceremony right. But isn't it amazing that this one curtain kept everybody, all of Israel apart from God? You'd go, it's just a curtain. But you know what that curtain means, right? So isn't it awesome that on the day Jesus Christ said it is finished, gave up his last breath, the minute he died, an earthquake hit, and God took that curtain 15 feet tall and ripped it from the top all the way down. No man tore it from the bottom. It was no man's effort. It was God going, we're not doing that anymore shredded it apart and all of a sudden the access to go be with god was made real that is extraordinary amen amen i love that listen the the powerful uh imagery of what's going on uh should remind us of how incredible god is that he would allow us into that place let's move on in our scripture it's verse six these preparations Having thus been made, meaning everything's set up properly, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. And I would tell you that they do that daily. They were in this area daily. But into the second, into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes, and he, but once a year, on Yom Kippur. And not without taking blood, meaning for cleansing and covering, which he offers for himself, because he's a sinner too, and for the unintentional sins of the people. But what I want you to see um, is that on this day of atonement, everything changed. I'm about to read for you what the high priest did, and you're going to go, wait, wait, slow down. I'm not getting this all. You're not supposed to get this all. I just want to make one point. Listen to how much preparation and work went into the idea of approaching God. Check this out. On the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 16, on the 10th day of the 7th month, what we know as September time frame in the fall, to cleanse all the sins that have not yet been covered in Israel, the high priest ordered a national fast that included children. So the fast was all day long. Later on, some super spiritual folks would fast 10 days before Yom Kippur. It was such a big deal. On that day, very early in the morning, at the break of dawn, with attendants watching and people examining, the high priest would go to the laver, the brass laver, that was made of bronze on the altar, this was made of brass, the same thing they made their mirrors out of, so it was shiny. 
the brass laver, he would begin to ceremonially wash under the watchful eye of everyone. He would wash head to toe and make sure he was ready to go. He then would put on the robes of his office, which were these. He had undergarments of white linen. He had a long white uh, robe that he would wear over it, very thin of white linen. Then he would put on the robe of the ephod. That was a dark blue, long all the way to the feet. And it would have fringe of blue, purple, and scarlet pomegranates sewn in with little bells on the bottom of it. On top of that, he would put what is called the ephod. It was a linen tunic embroidered with scarlet, purple, and gold with a chest plate. The chest plate had 12 gems or 12 very precious stones with the name of Israel engraved on each stone. Why on his chest? Because he carries them on his heart. On each shoulder of the ephod were one onyx stone each. So two onyx stones with six names engraved on one, six names engraved on the other. Why? Because he carries the weight of the nation on his shoulders. We got that? He then had, on top of all of that, a turban. The turban that he would put, or a a miter he would put, it had a gold plate that went across his forehead that said, Holiness unto the Lord. And it was attached with a ribbon. Inside the ephod was a pocket which contained the Urim and Thummim, which was basically a way to discern the will of God that he would search out and use for decision making. He would put on all these garments and then he would do the normal burning of the morning incense, the morning sacrifice, trimming the lamps on the lampstand. But from that moment on, everything was different. In his robes, He would sacrifice on that bronze altar one bull, seven lambs, one ram. He would then remove all the robes, completely cleanse again with water, dressed in simple, pure white linen, and then went to the altar of sacrifice. Brought to him was a bull that he purchased personally because he was about to atone for his own sins and the sin of his household. He would lay his hand on the bull and in front of the people confess his sin and the sin of his household with this phrase. Oh Lord God, I've committed iniquity. I have transgressed. I have sinned. I and my house, O Lord, I entreat thee cover over and atone for the iniquities, the transgressions and the sins which I have committed transgressed and sinned before thee i and my house even as it is written in the law of moses thy servant for in that day he will cover over and atone for you to make you clean from all your transgressions before the lord you shall be cleansed the bull is then tied up on the horns of the altar and left there two goats are brought to him along with an urn or a bowl with two lots inside think about drawing straws or drawing sticks One stick was marked for Jehovah or for Yahweh. The other one was marked scapegoat. He would randomly draw those out, place one on each head of the goats, and on the scapegoat was marked with a red scarlet ribbon for later. Then, after that, they are left for a moment. He goes back over to the bull. He slaughters the bull by slitting its throat and pouring the blood out into a basin. He keeps it swirling so it will not coagulate because he needs to use it in a moment. He hands it to an assistant and leaves it for now. He then scoops coals out of the bronze altar, goes over to the altar of incense, 
puts them in, pours incense in there of the finest perfume. This incense that was made in Israel right after God told him how to make it, he laid down a demand, don't use it for your own perfume. Meaning people are going to go, wow, this stuff is awesome. Why don't we just use it for us? He said, get away, make your own, that's mine. Right? You're not allowed to use that perfume for you. It had a beautiful smell to it. He then would mix that together with the coals and go in before the ark of God into the holy of holies. Symbolically for prayers, the smoke is going. He leaves the censer in that room and comes back out. When he returns to the people, he gets the blood of the bull of his own that was slaughtered, goes back into the Holy of Holies and sprinkles the blood all over the middle of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Seven times up, seven times down. What's intriguing about that is what is contained inside that box but the law of God. As God looks down on his law, there is only wrath to be had. There's only judgment to be had. But when God looks down, he no longer sees the law. He sees the what? The blood of mercy. So he looks down and the blood covers over or shields the law that is underneath the box. Does that make sense? All right. Then the high priest returns back to the people again, kills the goat that is marked for God, takes that blood, goes back into the Holy of Holies, sprinkles it all over again, comes back out, mixes together the blood of the bull, the blood of the goat, then sprinkles the altar of incense and the bronze altar on the corners pours out the rest of the blood at the base of the bronze altar and then the scapegoat is brought forward the high priest lays his hands on it confesses his sins the sins of the nation and that goat is taken out into the wilderness and let go as a sign of pardon then the high priest prepares the bull and goat for sacrifice cutting it up into pieces And then he reads passages and recites passages. Then he prays for the priesthood, prays for the people, then cleanses completely all over again, puts back on his fancy robes and in the robes. He sacrifices a new goat for the sins of the people, then does the normal evening sacrifice. Then he sacrifices the bull and goat meat parts. Cleansing again completely, takes off all the robes, puts back on the white linen, goes back into the Holy of Holies. To go get his stuff that he left there. You cannot go into the presence of God without cleansing all over again. He grabs his stuff, comes back out, cleanses all over again because he had been in the presence of God, puts back on the robes, burns the evening offering of incense, trims the lamps, and he's done. That night, he throws a party. Guess what the party is? Yay, I didn't die today. That's the party. Because you do not mess with the presence of God. If in any way he failed in any possible tiny way in those preparations, he would be struck dead. That's what the little bells are for. To know if he's in there and still moving or not. Because you can't even go in and get him out. When he comes out and realizes I have now been in the presence of God and I have lived, he throws a celebration. That was done every Yom Kippur. When you hear about Yom Kippur coming on your calendar, we just kind of ignore it. Do you understand that to the Jewish people, it is of the utmost seriousness. They do not have their temple to do all that anymore because it's torn down and the Temple Mount is under Palestinian control. So for them, that is a great frustration. All right? 
Okay, the only thing I want you to remember on all of that, besides the extreme things that they had to go through, was that there was limited access to God. That guy could only go in if he did everything right. One guy. Not everybody else. Everyone else was blocked. But when Jesus Christ died and the curtain was ripped in two, you have access to the Almighty. Please don't take that for granted. Please understand that because of Jesus dying for the sins of the world, we can approach without fear of wrath. That's pretty awesome. Let's finish it. Verse 8. By this whole concept, system, design, the Holy Spirit indicates through his word and through his people that the way into the holy places, access to God, was not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. That is symbolic for the way things used to be. According to this arrangement, according to the old style, according to what you just heard in the tabernacle, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But they only deal with food, drink, and various washings, mere regulations of the body imposed until the time of reformation. What that means is this was not all of it. This did not ultimately cut it. We needed something else. And remember, the author of Hebrews is talking to people who want to go back to this. They want to leave Jesus and return to what they know. They want to go from grace back into legalism. And I want to tell you this. Legalism will only get you so far. I understand you feel like you can control things and you know what's going on. You know the rules and regulations. I got to earn this. I'm going to be a good person. I got to try to earn my way to heaven. I got to make God love me. Do you understand? Welcome to your system. If you do anything imperfect, you're going to die. And you already have, so you're doomed already. But through Jesus, there is a way of grace and a new covenant and an opening wide that he might cleanse you of your sins as you repent before him. Do we see how this is beautiful? All right. So final thing as we close out is this. The same word that is used for tabernacle, the same word for the powerful presence of God that everyone shuddered at the thought the same word about a priest approaching, talking to God face to face, hearing from him, is the word that is used for Jesus Christ dwelling in our hearts. For it says, and he tabernacles in the hearts of his people. So this massive structure and all that it means after the curtain is torn dwells within the believer right here in your heart. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And Lord, that what you have accomplished, Jesus, on the cross, the way that you made a pathway, made an understanding for us, allowed us to walk into your presence. The way that you established a bridge to the Father for a wicked and dying people is amazing. We want you to know that we are grateful. We want you to know that we love you, that we do not take it for granted. And we want to tell you that you are glorious. May our awe of you rise up. May our, your glory be exuded in all of our being. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.